0: Before we dive into the sermon, which we will hear in just a second, a couple of announcements. Um, One, uh, it's so different when you hear about uh, St. Patrick from a Christian worldview. I grew up with a uh, father that was a beer salesman. And what I remember about St. Patrick's Day was my father's hands were always green because he had been dying beer all day long. For the parties. And when I was downtown last night, you would have never known St. Patrick was a saint, because everybody that I met downtown last night <laughs> was celebrating something far different. Um, and then the second thing on uh, just a family note, uh, First Baptist Chattahoochee. Um, many of y'all probably wouldn't know this, but... Uh, Caleb and Gabby have been praying and waiting for word to come. He's in med school, and he's graduating, but then his next step is to go do his residency, and he had a couple of cities, Florida, Texas, and Atlanta. And uh, we met and talked, and I told him, you know, if you can go home, I think that's always a good thing, and home for him is Texas. Um, And so I think that their hearts were set on going to Texas because both of them are from there. But in the providence of God, He has kept them in Atlanta, so Texas's loss our gain, and we're really, really excited. And uh, I I would do the happy dance, but I don't want to do that in front of y'all right now. Uh, yes, yes, you're most welcome, Joni. Um, so with that. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to meet us here. Father, as we turn in our worship, and it is indeed just that, we've worshipped in song, we've worshipped in prayer, and now we wish to worship at the reading and the contemplating of Your Word. I pray that You would take Your Word and build us up in our faith in Christ that your word would be actually a chance to worship in a fuller way as we hear what you have said to your people through the ages, through to the saints. So, God, may uh, you give me clarity, and then I pray that you would give your people ears and eyes to see the gospel and to see you through the teaching and hearing of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon today is, Don't Let Your Hearts Be Troubled. What I have found in my own life, and maybe you have found this too, is there seems to be this steady, low humming in my soul That is disquieting. It's not peaceful. And it seems to always kind of be there. Just this steady humming of lack of peace. And in our text, Jesus is going to address this with the disciples, but he's doing more than that, he's addressing it with us. So let me look at, by way of intro, Long, long before matter existed, before the cosmos took its first breath, before the first angel opened his eyes, when there was nothing, God had already lived forever. When there was nothing, God had already lived forever He had not just lived He was content He was happy This God And He had been happy forever And whatever God was He still is And He always will be That's what it means to be God. Meanwhile, the entire human race is trudging through pain, loss, death. Should God be allowed to have his feet up in a hammock while we toil our days out in this broken world? When you think about it like that, perhaps it causes some consternation. However, God, being a content God, is good news for us all. If he is to rescue us from this broken, darkening place, he had best not be bleeding and broken himself. God doesn't just get by, like when you say, how you doing? Well, I'm getting by. God doesn't just get by. God is flourishing all the time. How does God flourish? Here's a simple example. This week, uh, on Monday, I'm driving back home on Bolton Road and I have a lot of time on Bolton Road these days because the traffic's really bad. <laughs> Amen. John Mayer's song comes on. The song is called Daughters. The song, every time I hear it, just brings me to tears because I have two daughters, and they're away at school, and I miss them dearly. And as I'm listening to the song coming down Bolton Road, instead of my car coming continuing west to Whittier Mill I veer off to the left, and I go to our old neighborhood where I raised those two daughters and my son, that neighborhood being DuPont Commons. I rode by the house real slow, and I have to admit, a tear came out, and I remembered some things from their childhood. And then I rode around to the back alley, and I was pulling through, because in that back alley, I built one of the only things I've ever built in my life. I built a screened-in porch to add on to the back of that house. And it was so, I mean, I really think it was just the coolest porch ever. And then I built an arbor, and then I planted jasmine, and that jasmine beautifully grew over that arbor, which was the sidewalk that led into the back porch. And if you could see it, you would say, Clint, come build me a porch. I was really proud of that porch. I looked at it. And it just said warm and peaceful. And I had planted plants all around like a garden so that even though there were people all around you, you felt like you were in solitude back there. Could you imagine what God must have felt like at creation? The second that he flung a million galaxies into being, what did he feel like? That's flourishing. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, God laughed when he created the aardvark and that long ant-eating nose, you know, just kind of chuckled at himself like, (laughs) that's a funny animal. Or maybe this guy, I think I have a picture of him, this guy right here, the proboscis monkey, you know, when he created that, tell me he didn't just go, now that guy's got a honker on him, (laughs) you know? God is not just getting by in heaven. God is flourishing. The Bible calls him the blessed God. In 1 Timothy 1.11 it says this, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. That word blessed in the Greek translates often as happy. Not just a blessed God, but a happy God. God is joy splashing over the walls of heaven. This is where his mercy and his grace come from. It is a full tank of love. The Trinity enjoys together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit splashing over the walls of heaven themselves. And he delights to share this with his people. His people. And this is critical. This is critical for you to know this about God. Because it is part of what helps us calm that troubled soul. That humming in your soul that won't go away. Why is it important that you know that about God? Let me illustrate it this way. A lot of y'all have probably done this drive. I did it more than I care to talk about. Suppose you're driving I-16, the interstate from Savannah to Macon. There's nothing there. I think that's where Sherman went, burned everything out. (laughs) While you're driving this, your car chokes, coughs, stalls, and then it stops. You know, I know, it's no good for me to get out and open the hood. I don't know the difference between a wrench and a screwdriver. I mean, I might kick the tire, and then I go back and tell Peggy, yeah, it's, we're going to need a mechanic. <laughs> and so I walk three miles to the next exit, looking for help. Meanwhile, Peggy and the kids are waiting in the car in a hot, sunny day. And the first exit I come to, I see this 80-year-old, maybe 80-something-year-old man, and he's obviously coming out of a nursing home, and he's, he's wiping the tears from his eyes. And I look across the street, and I see these teenagers on both sides of the street, and they're screaming at each other bad words. And I'm thinking, mm, probably not going to ask them. And then... I see these neighbors sitting on a porch and they're having a conversation and they're laughing and they're, you know, drinking sweet tea. And the question that I have for you is, out of those three scenarios, which person would you ask for help? I'm going to ask the neighbors that seem to be enjoying themselves. Not the older guy who's sad over his wife, not the teenagers who are fighting with one another. I'm going to ask the people that are happy. When you're in trouble, it's really important to know, if I can say it this way, our God is in a good mood. Our God is not sitting up in heaven with his finger on a nuke button going, just do one more thing and I'm going to blast you all away. No. No. He's happy. Look at John 15, 11. It says this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. He wants his joy to be in us because he has joy, and he wants our joy to be full. We desperately need this joy. But more than we need this joy, we need the God of that joy. That's what we need more than anything in the world. Approximately, there will be 50,000 suicides in 2019 in America. There'll be 1,400,000 attempts. One in six Americans are on some form of anxiety and depression medication. So if you struggle with a soul that seems in turmoil, this text is for you today. But more significantly, the God of this text is your only hope and mine. And so, the disciples in our text today, in the very beginning in verse 1, look what he says, John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why were the disciples' hearts troubled? If you remember from the previous weeks, the disciples are at this point completely bewildered. Jesus has said to them, I'm going away. It's kind of like, where are you going? He's told them he's going to die. They're thinking, you're going to die? I thought you were going to be this political ruler and we were going to set up our kingdom. He's told them, one of you, one of you 12, is going to betray me. They've heard all this in just the last few moments. And then he's told Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, and it's already late evening, you're going to betray me three times. In Matthew, parallel gospel 26, 31, he says, All of you are going to fall away before I'm resurrected. So when Jesus is telling them this, they've heard all of that. And he's saying, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. They were already troubled. So he's telling them to stop. Stop being troubled. Stop letting your heart be troubled. The word for troubled there is a Greek word, and it's terrasso, But it means to shake or to stir up. To shake or to stir up. It's used to describe the literal stirring of the pool at Bethesda before the crippled would get in. They would stir the pool in hopes that there would be a healing. Don't let your soul be like that, he says. <clears throat> and then look at the, look at verse 2. Look at what he says right there. It's actually still verse 1. Believe in God... Believe also in me. So he's saying one remedy for a soul and a heart that is in turmoil is this believing in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. You will be believing in God. You will be believing in a God who is not in heaven biting his nails to kind of see how this world's going to play out or see how your problem's going to play out. He's not up there pacing the floor back and forth in this worried, senseless place. Believe in me, he says. I'm in a good mood. I know I told you I was going to be killed. I know I told you you're going to betray me. I know I told you Satan is going to come against you. But you should rest, and here's the the thing, and you should see an outline here in just a second. Rest in my person. And in that, you see the verses where I get that. He's saying, rest in my person. And then he's saying, rest in my presence. You can rest in my person, who I am. You can rest in my presence that I'm going to be with you, and you can rest in my plan. I have a plan. It may not feel like I have a plan, but I have a plan. What is Jesus telling them when he says, believe in God, believe also in me? It sounds redundant, doesn't it? Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is telling them once again that putting your hope in God is putting your hope in me. I am God himself. Me and the Father are one. If you know me, you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know me. If I love you, he loves you. And that's important. If I love you, He loves you because we are one. He and I, we are God. It's like Jesus is saying to the disciples at this point, fellas, in the grand scheme, you really don't have a lot to worry about. You're troubled and you're bothered, but in the grand scheme, you don't have a lot to worry about. Look with me uh, at verses 2 through 7. And I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to throw you, I'm going to throw you a curveball, Joseph, up there in the balcony when it comes to this, um, because it's going to be a little different interpretation than what you've heard possibly your whole life. But stay with me. Look at at verse 2 through 7. Jesus telling the disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. Now, that's a very interesting statement. If I come again and will take you to myself, all right, we're going to keep reading, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? You got to give us an address to punch into our GPS and then the GPS on my phone will tell me this is the directions. But you haven't even given us the address. How do we know where you're going? Jesus said to him, the most One of the more famous verses in all of John. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. All right. Jesus tells the disciples, my Father's house has... And in the ESV, it says, many rooms. But I am in full recognition that in the King James Version, it says many what? Mansions. Yes, it does. And then Jesus says he's going to go and prepare a place for them. Now, if it's mansions it probably would take a little while even for Jesus. So maybe Jesus is gonna put on his carpenter's belt and he's gonna remember what his father Joseph taught him and he's gonna take his, his saws and his chisels and he's going up to heaven and he's gonna create this room for you in the mansion because his father's house has many rooms, many mansions. And we, you know, unfortunately are, let me, let me go and say, At the end of the day, I don't think this is what that's talking about. Jesus is saying, I must leave you temporarily so I can go to the cross. This is what preparing the room is. I can go to the cross, pay your debt for sins, and then on Easter I'll be raised again, and then I'll be resurrected with the Father And the reason I say he's not going up there at that point to prepare rooms for a second coming, most people read this as a second, like the first coming was Jesus came, he was born as a child, he lived 33 years, and then he was crucified. That's the first coming. Most people think that this text is teaching about when he comes again, and he takes us home to glory, and that's it. That's the end of the world because all the saints go up to be with him. A better understanding of this text is he's going to leave and he's going to go prepare a room and the room is him. Look at the verse again where it says, I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to take you to me. Now, let me say this. The Father's house has many rooms. Some translations say this as the Father's house has many dwelling places. Many dwelling places. The Greek word, and I don't do this a lot, but is M-O-N-A-I. In the King James, translated from the Latin Vulgate, if you want to go study it, The King James was translated from the Latin Vulgate. They translated that Greek word as mansions. It was a poor translation. So what you have is a generation growing up saying, I'm going to have a mansion in heaven. But if you think about it, in a grand scheme, that's kind of still like this world. Like I'm going to have this mansion in heaven. That's kind of the way we think about life here. Because this concept, unfortunately, supports the Western economic notion that following Jesus is going to lead to economic prosperity, either in this life or the next. There's three problems with it. Here they are. First, God does not promise economic prosperity ever. He never promises that. Two, it is the way that the Jewish people gave word pictures when they were describing a relationship with God. They would often give you a word picture. This is a word picture. And third and most importantly, that Greek word M-O-N-A-I does not mean castle-like home or mansion the word is derived from a word similar to it that is dwelling place, a place to abide. And so the translation of mansion is not a good translation. And most, if not all, of the other translations that are out now don't say it that way. They knew that that was not a great translation. But we have a generation of people that grew up with the KJV, and they have heard it that way. And I, it's not like, well, if you believe that, you can't go to heaven. That's not the issue. I'm just trying to help you see that perhaps that's not the best translation. And why would I say that? It's this whole idea of, of you to myself. When in John 14:3, this is one of the most important phrases in everything that I'm saying today. I will come again and I will bring you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. That's repeated all through the New Testament. Where I am, my servants will be also. What is the essence of heaven? When you think about heaven, what do you think about? You know what the essence of heaven is? It is the immediate presence of Jesus. That's heaven. The immediate presence of Jesus. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, isn't the essence of what he's saying, I go this night through through death for you, and I go to Easter Sunday out of death for you, so that I myself might be your living and dwelling place. I will be the living and dwelling place. And Thomas says, we do not even know where you're going. How can we know? And that's why, that's why Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. I'm the way to heaven. I'm actually... Your room in the Father's house. You're going to be in me. And I am not yet prepared to receive you because I've got to go to the cross and die. I've got to raise from the dead. I've got to be glorified. Then I've got to intercede for you. And when I've done all that, I'll be ready. And your place in heaven with me will be ready. Not, i got to go get the mansion ready. But I got to do all this redemptive work, and then we'll be ready. So, we shouldn't interpret this passage to mean Christ is preparing a physical place in heaven, but rather, he is our room. We will be with him. That is the meaning of the text. That's the real point that he's driving home. And, and, and the, one of the reasons I know this even better is because when they ask, how do we know how to get there and we're going to be left and all this, he gets into, it wasn't even in our reading, but John 14, 16 through 18. Look what Jesus says there. He says, I'm going away, but I will ask the Father... And he's going to give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, you might read that and go, oh, he's talking about the second coming. No, he's not. If, if you read Romans 8, 9, it says, If you are in him, you have the Spirit. What Jesus is telling them, because they're so troubled, everything's falling apart. They're gonna, Jesus is going to die. He's going to leave. They're going to not follow faithfully. He's saying, When I go, guys, when I leave here, I'm sending you a helper. And it's going to be my spirit. And he's going to live in you. This has never happened before. You're about to get more help than you could ever imagine. You're going to get me, through, the, through my spirit, living in you. And so that's why he tells them, don't be troubled. He says, believe in God and believe in me. Trusting in this person. He's the creator, and he is the sustainer of the universe. He is God, and he's a happy God. You can trust in him. He is ready, willing, and able to help. So there's three things there. There's trusting in his person, and his person is a content, happy God that is willing and able and ready to help. And the second one is Trusting in his presence, he says in Isaiah 41.10, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're his, he will never leave you or forsake you. But you're sitting there and you're going, Clint, that's all good. I get it. I hear you. That's all good, buddy. Thank you, pastor. But you're thinking to yourself, you don't know what's, what's going on in my marriage, man. You have no idea. You're talking about all these spiritual, wonderful things. Or maybe it's this. My health is failing. You're talking about all this fabulous stuff, but I need help right now. Or I cannot stand my boss at work. If I have to look at him one more time, I think I'm going to punch him square in the nose. Or maybe you're sitting here And you're desperately lonely. And you have been for a long time. How does this stuff help us then? Trusting in his presence. That second one. My sister-in-law is a labor and delivery nurse. And for a long time she worked in the NICU unit. So it's the premature little babies that are born. And she told me one time a story that has stuck with me. And she said that when these newborns that are premature come into the world, they have to, around the clock, have people go in there into the NICU and just touch those little babies and make sure that they feel human touch. Because if they do not have human touch, if everything else is the same, they'll die. And I I thought to myself, really? That's bizarre. And she said, yes, just knowing they're not alone and having the touch of another person actually somehow keeps them alive. I think that when we are going through the storms of life, one of the things that I need and you need more than anything else is just to know that somebody's there. They don't have to talk to me. Matter of fact, in most cases I'd rather they wouldn't give me their little solutions to my problem. I just wish they would be there. That I'm not alone in my depression. Y'all, some of you know I've struggled with that in the early 2000s. And there was a time where I couldn't be alone. And I would ask Peggy to stay home from work. Of course, she was teaching at the kids' school, and she couldn't. And I couldn't be alone. I was so in, in a bad place. So I would get up in the morning when she would go to work, and I would drive out to my mother's house in Douglasville just so I could be with her and be with someone because I couldn't be alone. And it was through that, the beauty of that way God works, is in those two weeks that I was in the worst place, we talked through her life and I began to understand the hurts and the pains and why she was not able to be the mother that I had hoped that she would be. I mostly was raised with my father and we worked through so many things over those two weeks as we were together. What I'm saying is this, you need to be practicing now the presence of God in your life, because when the storms come, you need to know bedrock, He's with you. And I'm afraid that if you don't build that into your life as you're going, when the storm comes... You're not really sure he is. But when that relationship is so solid, built over time, even in the worst storms, you know he's with you. We need to know the presence of God. And finally, and lastly, the plan of God. All through this, he's telling them this is the plan, guys. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring you with me. I'm going to send my helper, my Holy Spirit. But you could imagine how the inner turmoil of everything else he had said. I'm going to die. You're going to betray me. Oh, Peter, he's, he's going to betray me three times before morning. And these guys are like, God, you got our head spinning. This sounds horrible. But God is saying, trust my plan. Trust my plan. You, you, you can't see everything that I'm doing. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's something happening in your marriage. Maybe it's work. You can't see everything God is doing, believer, in Christ. And he may be doing things that hurt or you don't understand that are really painful. Matter of fact, I'd be willing, because we live in a broken world, to bet everybody in here has something like that. And here's my attempt to help you understand God's plan to help relieve some of the turmoil in your soul. This is what I'm aiming for. Isaiah 14, 27 says this He is sovereign, and no one can thwart His plan. No one. No thing, nothing can mess up His plan. He's God. So what does that mean to me? Maybe you've heard me say it this way. I hope this time it's clearer. Think about it. There's not a person. There's not a situation. There's not even a molecule, like a microscopic molecule in this world. That God is not sovereign over, meaning He is in complete control of all of it. Of all of it. And why is that important? This is why it's important. If there is one person in the world who is a free agent, and I'm not talking about NFL free agent, I'm saying he's independent, he's not under God's control then that one person could throw off God's whole plan because he's independent of God. He's not under God's control. He's not under God's sovereignty. But if not even a molecule is not under God. See, here's the thing. God cannot be sovereign by definition if he is not sovereign over every molecule in the world and in the universe. The definition of sovereignty is you're in control over everything. There's nothing out of your control. And why is that so important to me? Why do I get so worked up over that? Because that is my hope in this life. That even the bad things, and there are bad, and we know it. Even the bad things that come my way, they must ask permission and go through my Father to get to me. Not one molecule can come to me. Not one bad thing. Not one boss that hates me. Nothing can come to me without him being in control. Now, I might could say, well, then, God, you're not good. But I think a far more biblical answer if you're a Christian is he allows bad things to happen so that good things can happen in me and eternal things can happen through me. It's Romans 8, 31 and 32. If he did not spare his own son, if he didn't, I mean, he, he killed his son for you, Christian. If he did not spare his own son, how will he not freely give you all things? Not all things like I need a Tesla, but all things that are good for you. He'll do that. And that is our hope. That is our hope. His person, I can trust in his person. He is good, and he is sovereign over all things. Nothing can happen to me that doesn't pass through his hand. He gives permission. And, you know, ultimately, our suffering and our pain in this life, you cannot make complete sense of it without factoring in the next world, without factoring in the next life. He is getting us ready for something. And this, what we have in this life, is really just a preface to this massive eternal story. And we're living in the preface. Let's pray. Father, would you help us see you as you really are in all your glory and treasure you for who you really are. May we hope and trust in your sovereign plan, in your person, in your presence. There is fullness of joy, you say in Psalm 16. I pray your people would know that fullness.